You are listening to the For Flourishing Sake podcast by Frederica Roberts. Welcome to episode 46. As I write and record this week's episode and think about the phrase, the greater good, in the title, I can't help being momentarily distracted and chuckling to myself. If you've seen the dark comedy film Hot Fuzz, you'll know what I mean. If not, I highly recommend it. And until you've watched it, just ignore me laughing to myself for a moment as I remember how the phrase, the greater good, was used in the film. My inspiration for today's topic, however, comes from reading two articles recently that talked quite negatively about the origins of positive psychology as a pretty selfish endeavour focused purely on individual well-being. In her article for The Conversation, researcher Emma Anderson describes two views of happiness, one focusing on strong societal bonds and interdependence leading to state welfare provisions, and another, which she has found in her research to be more common, being an individualistic view of working on one's happiness. Emma cites growing criticisms of positive psychology, which seems to negate social injustices, poverty, exploitation, etc., and essentially blame the victims because they're not putting in the effort to be happy. I get this. My very first essay for my Master's in Applied Positive Psychology was about the criticisms of this field, and there is some validity in accusing positive psychology of elitism. Though I would also argue that even from its inception, the proponents of positive psychology such as Martin Seligman talked about societal flourishing, so perhaps the issue has been more an interpretation than design. That said, the second article related to this criticism that I've read in the last week was a research paper by Michael Hogan, published very recently in May this year, in fact. In this paper, he cites the models of what's known as second wave positive psychology, in which there is much more focus on collaboration towards collective well-being and where negative emotions such as anger and sadness can drive societal transformation. Emma Anderson's article does in fact end with an expression of hope that as we return to some kind of normality, we also retain, and I quote here, our renewed sense of community and activism, and that our more outward-looking version of well-being continues and thrives. I hope that too, and I firmly believe that schools and our education system as a whole have a large role to play in this. When I developed my LEAF, Learn and Flourish, model of whole school positive education, I looked at many models around the world, and the most comprehensive ones included elements of schools supporting their local communities and encouraging good citizenship in their students. Character education, which forms a significant element of positive education, also encourages the development of strengths and virtues that make us far more focused on the collective greater good than merely on ourselves. Collaboration features highly in my model of whole school positive education, as stakeholder engagement at every level is essential for such an approach to be truly comprehensive and effective. I know that for my part, and all the people I've worked with and studied with in the field of positive psychology, this field has never been about a selfish drive for hedonistic happiness, but rather a focus on eudaimonia, which has much broader societal connotations. As individuals, we have limited control and influence over national policy, though of course those of us lucky enough to have a democratic voice through voting in elections have some level of influence that way. Additionally, we have seen, particularly recently, the power of peaceful protest. 
But as educators, we have a huge opportunity to shape a better, more collaborative and altruistic world. We can start by creating schools where these values are strong. We can demonstrate these values in our interactions with our colleagues, our students, their parents and the wider community. We can ensure our school's policies foster these values and that these are reflected in those schools' cultures. In my book, For Flourishing Sake, I give plenty of examples of how teachers and school leaders have done this in a wide range of educational settings. It can be done. And if we start in schools, we're laying the foundations for the future. So as you plan for the next academic year or as you go to work in school today, if your school's currently open, consider the small steps you can take as an individual to support a more collaborative and supportive culture within your school. It can start with something as simple as a smile and a small act of kindness. What seed will you plant today for a flourishing tomorrow? As usual, you will find all article links and references on this episode's page at forflourishingsake.com. Thank you for tuning in to the For Flourishing Sake podcast. If you found this episode useful, please give it a five-star rating on iTunes to help it reach more people and please spread the word. Also, if you haven't already, remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For Flourishing Sake is available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. The book by the same name came out on Kindle on the 18th of June and will be out on paperback on the 21st of August. You'll find it on all the major online book retailer sites. It's jam-packed with evidence-based strategies for whole school positive education with case study examples from a wide range of schools from around the world. So why not order your Kindle copy now or pre-order your paperback so you'll receive it as soon as it's published? If you'd like to get in touch with questions or comments or to contribute to a future episode, please contact me via Twitter at FlourishingEd. You can also leave comments on individual episode pages on the forflourishingsake.com website. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, for flourishing sake, have a great week.